You are listening to the Enormo Cast. They're finally here, folks. The prettiest thing to ever be shoved in a crack. The new Black Diamond Ultralight C4. The featherweight camming champion of the world. 20 to 30% lighter than the old C4s, which means they're 20 to 30% more More sick. The BD Ultralight cams are more lightweight than bailing off the nose because you ran out of baby wipes. They're more lightweight than that kid from Provo who fell on the campfire after two beers in Indian Creek. True story. They're the device that's oh so nice and the cam that can handle the slam. If you dream of climbing with different cams, you should wake up and apologize. So check out BlackDiamondEquipment.com for the specs on these little beauties or head over to your nearest climbing retailer to fondle them with your own chubby knuckles. Put the cam down, sir. So let's say you've taken the advice you've heard on the Enormacast and played it ice climbing cool with that special climbing friend, going on trip after trip like your family, even though you've had the hots for him or her since they burned you off your proj and flips in a ratty pair of Yojimbos from the Lost and Found. Well, if the perfect belay isn't conveying your longing, perhaps the climbing-inspired jewelry and accessories of Peter Gilroy will help you put the punctuation on that date that's not a date, might be a date, climbing date. At PeterWGilroy.com, you'll find jewelry, money clips, belt buckles, hats, and more, all inspired by the rock and the mountains on which your love has flourished. So please, before you resort to the lean-in or the forgotten sleeping bag or the embarrassing confessional after a 12-pack around the campfire, try a classier approach with a spectacular gift from PeterWGilroy.com. And if you crash and burn... Know that Peter and the Normacast still appreciate your support, even if your partner does short rope you to the curb. And remember, enter Enormo at checkout for a discount. But keep that part to yourself. We gotta get Listen, uh, uh, where are you playing in town? You, are you playing here? We're doing the uh, Enormo Dome, whatever it is. It's terrific. Oh, it's yeah, big place. That's, that's, out. Very that's a big nice. place. You sold that out. 20,000 seats. We really yeah. should. Look, you better get up there before you panic. Those pens are loose. You're very good. I have really enjoyed having them with you. We'll make it. I don't think so. But we shall continue with style. Good weather. Bad weather. Now or later, anytime. Today's show is brought to you by Black Diamond Equipment, with support from Maxim Ropes. And the fine folks at La Sportiva. And don't forget our charter sponsor, Bonfire Coffee. Go to bonfirecoffee.com and enter Enorma at checkout for a discount on great coffee and to support the Enorma cast. And now back to the show. Hello and welcome to the Enorma Cast. This is your host, Chris Caloose. It is 11 a.m., January 21st, 2016. This is episode 97 of the Enorma Cast, a conversation with alpinist and all around climber Jay Smith. Strange time to be doing the Enorma Cast. I worked this morning. Now it's a sunny day out. 
and I'm sitting here talking to you guys remotely through space and time. I'm talking to you because this could be very long in the future. Just got back from the Ure Ice Fest. I go to the Ice Fest the last couple of years kind of undercover. I have no official connection. I don't do any official events. I don't even know who really runs that whole thing. I don't get any interviews. I basically just go to have fun. And having fun means ice climbing just a little teeny tiny bit and then moving on. Mostly having fun means hanging out in the hot springs and drinking and dancing. And this year was no different. But I tell you, climbing out in the ice park during the festival is kind of epic. Like, first of all, there's tons of people, more than really they can handle, um, which is to be understood at a climbing festival. But there's a lot of sketchy shit going on out there. And I know they probably don't have any liability. There's some clause to make sure that everything is individual responsibility. But there's some folks out there that really shouldn't be on their own climbing anywhere, let alone ice climbing. I mean, I realize it's top roping and the anchors are all right there for you. But, you know, I'm talking about running in people who are like all by themselves and not being able to tie their knots and not really understanding anything about equalization and... I don't know, just some wild stuff out there. I didn't have to kind of intervene, you know, although I helped out a couple people. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. You guys, like, what is it with uh, the ice park? Is it just too easy? Is it a too too easy access? Like, nobody has to sort of pass any kind of natural selection to walk in there? Anyway, yeah, it's not my problem, I guess. But Ice Fest, a lot of fun. Ice Park's pretty cool. The V-Spaden, look, without going to the V-Spaden, I don't think I would go to Ice Fest. And like all you guys, I know spending money on accommodation is like the lowest thing on your dirtbag list. You know, every once in a while out there, you throw down for a Motel 6 so you can watch a little HBO and get a shower. But the V-Spaden, it's relatively affordable. And I tell you what, you come off of those cold days, although, once again, the Ice Fest was rather pleasant temperature-wise. And if you tried a lot harder than I did and actually had some muscle strain, and you're cold, your muscles hurt, whatever, like dipping in those pools is so worth it. Affordable, friendly, check it out. The V-Spaden, they're my best friends now. V-Spaden, which is spelled with a W. It's actually kind of funny to tell people where you're staying that's never heard of it. They will make you repeat it like 14 times. V-Spaten is German for hot springs, I think. Something to do with water. Moving on, let's talk about Jay Smith a little bit. Jay was actually one of those guys who was a bit reluctant to come on the Enormous Cast. He was talked into it. I think he uh, did a great job once he settled in. Um, but he is of a ilk and maybe even a generation that uh, I think aren't supposed to talk about themselves at length. You know, they're supposed to let their feats and their uh, ascents and their accomplishments stand for themselves. It's no surprise that Jay's good buddies with Jack Tackle, another guy that believes in keeping it on the DL. But anyway, Jay came on, was gracious to host me and some friends at his house, and came on the podcast. Another thing I want to say about the interview that's a little strange if you listen carefully is that we keep talking about his very recent, at the time, a couple months ago, trip to the Himalaya. And we mention it, but we never go into it, which I know seems like sort of an oversight in my, my part. But Jay wasn't really ready to talk about the trip. He had literally just returned within a couple days. 
and was still kind of hobbling around and they just hadn't yet processed the whole thing and they'd gone pretty far out there so he wasn't quite ready to talk about it so that's why I kept kind of we kept mentioning it in the flow of the conversation but never really got into it I actually haven't seen if anything's been written about it yet even um, like I said this was a couple months ago so anyway keep an eye out for that and I don't keep that close attention there's too much media to take it all in so maybe something's been written about it I don't know I don't even know where to start looking because I can't remember the peak they climbed or tried to climb rather anyhow so that's going on in there as well otherwise great interview and I really appreciate the fact that Jay uh, let down his guard a little bit and sat down for an interview so let's get to it episode 97 conversation with Jay Smith <laughs> uh, I'm sitting in the mobile studio, and it almost didn't make it here because the clutch started to go out on the way from Moab. I'm in Castle Valley with uh, Jay Smith at Jay Smith's house. Thanks for having me over here, Jay. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for coming by. It's a beautiful place. I mean, you must know that. It's incredible where you're living. Well, thanks. What uh, What brought you to Castle Valley? Well, you know, I started climbing out here in 1982, and it was actually on a trip uh that I was guiding at the time and I had never been out here and I had a client for a month and uh, we went to Joshua Tree and Red Rocks and came out here and went to Indian Creek and uh it was unbelievable I mean you know I'd never seen anything like it hadn't climbed anything quite like it fell in love with the place and just kept coming back right and you said that you moved here when there was basically nobody here I moved here in 1990. Right. Well, I bought my property in right. 1990. Right. So it was like, I mean, was it the price a big part of it? I mean, was it pretty easy to get into something out here? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that was definitely the time, you know. I mean, you could buy five acres here for $9,500. Ah. Should... <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Those, those times are gone. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. I mean, there's some big places out here and, and kind of bourgeoisie has moved in, it seems like. Well, Moab has changed since those days, for mm-hmm. sure. Yeah, well, we'll get back to that. So, Jay, the the thing that, I, you know, I did my, my modicum of research that I do for these things, because I already feel like I know everything about climbing. But, you know, I, I basically I Google somebody for, you know, a few minutes. And the interesting thing is is that your your web presence is, is not super strong. I came across some... Good. Yeah, I know. Well, that, that's where I'm going to go with this. But I came across some forum posts of like where the where are they now question of like, hey, is anybody where's Jay Smith anyway? Or can anybody get in touch with Jay Smith? And oh, I think I think Danini knows him. Get in touch with Danini or whatever. And and it sort of started to dawn on me that that that's been kind of a, a part of your career, if you want to call it that. And I was kind of wondering if that's me projecting on you or has that philosophy of getting things done but not necessarily having this sort of presence with fame or with uh you know in nowadays the internet or anything else was is that part of your personality or is that was that an objective you had or is it just something that's happened um i mean it's probably something that's just happened but you know 
places that I've climbed. I mean, for me, it's always been, you know, the biggest draw has been the first ascent. Okay. And so that's what drew me here to Moab. In 1982, there was, it was in, wide open. What's that? In 1982, it was wide open. In 82, it was wide open, yeah. And then before that, I was in Tahoe. And when I moved to Tahoe, and like, first time I went there was 76, and it was wide open. And first time I went to Red Rocks was, I don't know, late 70s, maybe, something like that. And they were building the loop road. And so, you know, I met Randy Grandstaff, and um, there was no climbers. Right. There was, so everywhere I've gone, there was no climbers, except, I mean, Indian Creek, there was a couple. Steve Hong was still climbing there at the time. Right. That's what's always drawn me to these places, you know. So when a place gets crowded, I'll just move on. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that's, I guess, going back to that, is that the big thing, too, that, that I know about you and is sort of backed up by research or just, you know, your name is attached to all these places. And anybody listening to this who's climbed in all these places is going to recognize the name Jay Smith because it's just, it's there all the time. And so the, that's kind of the interesting thing is that you, you're this incredibly prolific climber who's climbed first ascents worldwide and many, many of them significant and yet, like I said, I was like, well, where is he? I can hardly even find any pictures of him other than the really crusty one with all this, all the ice on you. And uh, so I guess what I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, too, is when you, besides the fact that nobody's in these places, when you do decide on an objective, especially a, an objective that's going to, you know, A, cost you money, time, an incredible amount of effort, let's say something in Patagonia um, or something, you know, in Asia or anything else, what is it that you think is is some of the key factors when you're like, this is something I want to go do with my time, maybe risk my life for it, but I have to go do these things? I'd say it's the beauty of either the peak or, you know, the formation or, you know, I mean, if you went to Yosemite and you walked in for the first time and you saw the nose and it hadn't been climbed, I mean, you'd be drawn to something like that. And... When I've gone to these other areas, um, I can see lines similar, you know, and uh, that's it, draw, it catches my eye and it's like, whoa, that's an awesome looking route. And it hasn't been climbed and yeah, I'd like to do it. And so as I find those over time, you know, I try to take them off and I only choose things that I think I can climb. Uh -huh. I don't choose things that are beyond me. I try not to. And so, yeah, I mean, I don't push the standards too much, and certainly not by today's standards. And, you know, I just like to climb at my limit, mm -hmm. whatever that may be. So when have you uh, overstepped your bounds? When, have, when Can you cite any time where you what? were like, your your uh, eyes were a little bigger than what you could stomach? Um, No, not necessarily, but... A lot of the routes that I've done, a lot of the, the big routes, you know, like in Patagonia, not necessarily all of them, but, you know, the route like the Phantom Wall and my route on Middle Triple and Kachatna Spire, those all took me two attempts. Right. They all, they all, I don't know why it is. It always takes me two attempts. Is that bad luck or bad climbing? I don't know what. But. Well, what, I mean, have you ever really thought about it? What do you think? Is it... Is it a matter of, like, figuring out logistics the first time around, or 
No, I think a lot of it has to do with weather. Okay. So it's just bad luck. You know. Right. Well, it didn't used to be that people could get on the internet and get weather forecasts. Sure. Right. So when I was climbing Patagonia, we didn't have anything like that. We just had a barometer. What years was that? Uh, First year I went was 87, 88 with Bridwell, and we climbed the Cerro Stanhart and Desmachado. And tried Cerro Torre. Okay. Mm-hmm. That line on, what was the route you did on Stan Hart? Uh, Exocet. Right. Probably the easiest way up the mountain. Right. Maybe the most obvious line then. Yeah, except when we went originally, we tried the south face. Because Bridwell had talked to some Brits, and they said, yeah, the south face is 5'7". <laughs> oh, right. Well, we got around, you know, you kind of start to the north and go up the ramp and come around the south base. And I looked up and there was a, a, you know, the mushrooms jutted out 100 feet. Right. <laughs> I was like, well, how do you get past that, you know? And, uh, you know, right then a storm came in and chased us down. Uh-huh. And, and it was funny because that night before we went, um, we were in a, a Bertrand right at the start of the route. And... Uh, at like four in the morning, a voice came into the into the door of our cave, more or less, and asked, he goes, is Jim Bridwell there? And I was just like, whoa, you know, here we are in the middle of nowhere. I'd never been to Patagonia before. Mm-hmm. And there's somebody asking where Bridwell is at four in the morning. And so all of a sudden found out it was this guy, these two guys, and they were going for the first ascent of the Stanhart as well. Okay. And here we were, you know, I didn't didn't realize it was such a prize at the time but uh yeah so so what did they want I, they just had heard that he was there and i guess you know they wanted to say hi a brush then, with greatness as it were <laughs> yeah i don't know but they were all of a sudden there in front of us and so then, what then we all got that? stormed off oh, okay and then day. you guys came and back they, they weren't able to come back okay. and they actually had tried the chimney uh-huh. the and when we were coming down i looked up at the chimney and saw it was an ice line, and of course I was way into ice climbing at the mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. And you know that looked like a much more logical way than what we had just tried. Right. So we went back down and regrouped and came back up and did it. So you essentially grew up climbing in the seventies. You you mentioned right before we started that you, the first time you climbed was in nineteen sixty nine. Yeah. And so then you grew up climbing in the seventies, and this right. and to me like the seventies in a lot of ways became this era of specialization where there was these free climbers and there was these guys who, you know, started using chalk and, and bouldering kind of became, came into existence all during this time. And yet it seems to me that you pursued an all around ethic of being able to climb whether, whatever it happens to be looking at your resume. That's what it says, you know, free climbing desert, big mountains, ice climbing, whatever it happens to be. What, you know, what is it that draws you to being somebody that can do all the disciplines. Well, maybe I'm not that great at any one of them. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it's just like, you know, you start out you start out by rock climbing, and next thing you know, it's winter. Then what are you going to do? Well, in those days, there was no gym. So, you know, my first ice climb was the north face of Talkeets in 1971 or something with a crag hammer and a, ice axe that I borrowed, you know, and we didn't even get up the thing. 
Or actually, well, the second try, I think we did. The first time we were <laughs> hauling a frame pack, and we had like, you know, four pitons and a couple slings. And, you know, you'd, you'd pick up Mountain Magazine or something and look at, whoa, whoa, look at these guys are doing. Because I didn't, when I started climbing, I didn't know any climbers. Mm-hmm. I had never met a climber. And so you, did you start in Southern California? Well, what actually happened was I, I was growing up in Sonoma and... This is in the 60s, late 60s, and things were going on in California and Haight-Ashbury and drugs and all that stuff. And here I was, you know, I was still in high school, mm-hmm. just in high school, just getting into high school. And, you know, all this stuff's going on in the streets, and my folks saw that, and they're like, we're sending you to Knowles. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. So I didn't even know what Knowles was anyway. So I went off. So they dropped me off in Wyoming, and I met Paul Petzold, and we I did a course. And, what what kind of kid were you? Well, I grew up on a ranch. You oh, okay, know, but you know, lived seven miles from town. Had to hitchhike to town, and I mean, it was the flatlands. There was no climbing or right, anything right. around. And my folks were, you know, they were into. My dad was into hunting and roping and things like that, mm-hmm. and. You know, it wasn't until they sent me to to Knowles that I saw something different in something. I don't know, uh, just because it wasn't even a climbing course that I took, but we did go climbing at the end of the course. And on my very first climb, we actually had an accident. Um, there was no guides, no instructors with us. They said, "Oh yeah, you can go." And we started out, and we went up this climb, and there was four of us. And the leader actually got up and set himself a stance. This was before nuts. This was like we had pitons and, you know, one-inch webbing except for swamis. And anyway, he knocked a rock off, and that rock came down and beamed my tent mate. And it was a major rescue. And, uh, you know, he was never – my tent mate was never the same after that. So – but anyway, that was me, my very first Let climb. me get this straight. <laughs> These guys, you, you were like, you were all students? Yeah. And they were just like, yeah, yeah, yeah we're go. not into it. Go for it. Have a good time it up there. It was a thing called Easy Day Peak, and you know, I've never been back to it since. But, really? Uh, That's yeah. just so insane. Major accident. Like in the modern major age. Major rescue. That they would just be like, yeah, we're busy. Here's some ropes. We taught you that yesterday. Go for it. Yeah. And so, I mean... Kid like bleeding and, and oh yeah, man. I was holding him in my arms, you know, skull fracture. Holy cow! It was, you know, they had to send out a runner ten right. miles right. just to get to a phone, okay, to make the emergency call. And yet, that was your first climb. That was my very first. Climb. And you were like holding a bloody person. And you're like, wow, this is actually something I could really get into. <laughs> well, I think it was a while after that. that I really like this. <laughs> This is really great. I don't know. I, I, you know, I went to a boarding school and I had a tent mate, and we ended up picking up a or a roommate. Right. And I had uh, somebody gave me a Royal Robbins book, and and you know, I mean, I was going to school in Idlewild. Okay. So we had boulders uh-huh. on campus, right? And we just started climbing, you know, and like, okay, look at oh, this is you know, read the book and. Go out and do it, you know, because we could walk to these places. And the boarding school didn't didn't have any sort of climbing program at that point. No, we started we started the program. Oh, okay. So within a year, we got uh, this guy who was his name was Bud Couch, who he later changed his name to Ivan Couch, but he put up first Santa Valhalla, Sundance, mm. a lot of the hard routes on 
talkie suicide. Right. And he became our instructor. And, you know, of course, eventually made huge gains through his guidance. Right. That's awesome. So when did you uh, when did you kind of change over to thinking about, you know, you're a kid dabbling in it and uh, going to high school. And then I assume your parents probably wanted you to go on to second dairy sort of education. And uh, when did you decide that climbing was like the thing that this was going to be something that probably uh, guided your life for the rest of well up until I was sitting here, I think, to a certain extent. You know, I don't know. I mean, in those days, like I said, I didn't know anybody that climbed. You know, I started meeting people. Um, but it it gave me direction. It gave me something to do, something I really enjoyed doing. I thought it was something totally different that nobody else did. And I enjoyed it, you know. And I got my roommate into it, and he was excelling at the sport. And we just kind of played along the game with each our friends who were in school with us, we got some of them involved. And a lot of those people went on to become, you know, pretty good climbers. Mm-hmm. Pursued it for quite some time. Yeah, it just became a lifestyle almost immediately, you know. And as soon as I graduated from high school, I went back to that high school and taught climbing for a year. Okay. at the, the In the program you'd started, essentially, yeah. you and your friends had started. Yeah. Awesome. So you, you get, out of, get out of high school. Did you end up going to college? Yeah, I went to the University of Colorado. Oh, okay. Right on. So you moved out to Boulder. Yeah. A, a transplant from California. Yeah, because Boulder had a lot of climbing, right? Right, 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 right. <laughs> and, of course, that was a summer program, and so I got involved in that. Yeah, it's a long story, but anyway, it was like way This is a long podcast. Yeah. You know. <laughs> <laughs> it was a summer program. It started before I got out of high school. Okay. So I got into it late. Mm-hmm. And then when I got there, then, you know, of course, all they wanted to do was go climbing. Mm-hmm. It was like, you know, I just graduated from high school. I haven't been out of it for a week. And here I'm already, you know, a month behind in college. Right. And That's so okay. that didn't help. Right. And so I ended up just kind of dropping out after mm-hmm. a while and going climbing in Boulder okay. and then moved back and taught climbing for a year and then went back to school after that. But Okay. And, and let's talk about sort of the life of climbing and the career in climbing. You've done a lot of guiding yeah. over the years. Yeah. And uh, didn't. And one of the storied things about your guiding is that you were a, a big part of guiding seals. Is that what I'm... Are you allowed to talk about that? Yeah, I don't think that's so secret anymore. <laughs> I was just waiting <laughs> not, for like a little red dot to come across on your forehead for a second. Well, yeah. I mean, at the time... You know, it was an elite SEAL team. I won't even mention who it was. But um, at the time, um, I didn't really know who these guys were. Mm -hmm. We had started a guide service in Lake Tahoe. These guys came up and asked us if if we could do a course for them. And um, the first trip we ever did was ice climbing and levining. Mm -hmm. And we went out there and we dug a snow cave and we all got in this cave. And I started looking at these guys, and, you know, they all have the same watch. They're all about the same age, you know. They they don't look like sheriffs. And we're sitting in the cave, and we're like, wait a minute. You guys, you guys aren't sheriffs rescued. Who are you? Yeah, you're anyway, a little, you, you got know? your shit wired a little tighter than I would expect <laughs> from a sheriff's rescue team, right? And, of course, you know, the first <laughs> thing they say is, well, we could tell you, but we'd have to kill you. Mm-hmm. Wink. <laughs> 
Yeah, so then I worked with those guys for 20 years. Okay. Getting di- the same team or getting different people through? Um, mainly with the same team. Okay. And they were they were the elite team. They were the ones that had the money. Right. And, um, you know, we weren't allowed to talk about it. Right. In fact, I signed waivers that, you know, if I could go to prison for talking about All it. All right. Well, I great. think at this, this stage. This would be just... great. The enormous cast can, can uh, <laughs> my first guest that was thrown in jail for something he said on here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but yeah, I mean they were they're really great guys to work with and they didn't tell me any secrets. Right. They told me some stories though. Yeah, sure. You know. Well, I, I actually guided um for quite a few years and and we ran uh, some some rangers through our school uh, it's, uh CMS up in Estes Park. We ran these rangers through occasionally from Fort Bragg, is that where those right. guys are? Yeah. Or is it Airborne? I don't know, big big Army dudes, right? Yeah. And maybe not quite the, uh, you know, the level, elite level of, of uh, what these SEALs guys were probably like. But it was pretty fun to have those guys come out because they weren't normal clients. And you right. could, you know, basically they were like, you can, you know, we can go and if something happens to us, it's not your fault. Like, <laughs> yeah, right. So we could allow them to, like, legally we could allow them to lead and we could allow them to do all these things that you wouldn't necessarily let climbers do. But... It was funny because, you know, they were from sea level, essentially, and me and it was Topher Donahue, uh, like both tiny little dudes, you know, and super rangy and like we hike up and down lumpy like, you know, every day for weeks on end, just smoking these guys on the trail, these huge, huge dudes like, and we're just like running circles around and they just sweating. They just couldn't believe it. And then one year they came and they wanted to learn to aid climb, uh, apparently to, you know, assault some castle on the mountain top or whatever it happens to be and man watching these like 240 pound like muscle bound dudes like bounce testing like nuts and stuff was insane like (laughs) stand back yeah just waiting for the entire like mountain to like completely fall off so sort of story i remember those guys being pretty wild um, but always and ready to fun. go. Yeah, they're super fun. Yeah. Yeah, like super yeah. ready to go. And, and they'll do anything you tell them to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, give it a try. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Right. So, I don't know. I wonder what they, uh, yeah, they probably use some of that stuff over the years. Oh, yeah. I think it's, you know, I look back at what's happened since I worked with them and them going to Iran and Afghanistan and, you know, Iraq. And yeah. Everywhere. And the caves and the mountain, you know, the mountain enclaves and. All that stuff in the beginning of Afghanistan. Yeah, 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 it finally paid off. I mean, yeah. these were, you know, they're Navy SEALs. You expect them to operate only, you know, within, I mean, their their AO area of operation was like 10 miles from the coast. Right. Well, that all changed. Yeah, exactly. You know, so the climbing, I think, actually paid off. So what else have you done to, uh, to keep climbing a part of your life and make a living? Well, guiding was the big thing. Mm-hmm. And then because of the SEALs, actually, I got introduced to... Uh, adventure racing. Okay. Because some of the SEALs were on the team with Mark Burnett, who eventually, he's the one that started the Eco Challenge. Mm -hmm. And of course, he's got all these programs on television now, Survivor, and all these other things that I think are still on the air. But anyway, so Mark raced with two SEALs that I had worked with. And then when Mark started the Eco Challenge, the guys I had worked with recommended me as a person to maybe rig. Okay. Of the first race was out here in Moab with the first Eco Challenge. And, uh, you know, it was it was an awesome job. I mean, it was 
Dan Osmond and myself and another guy, Jeff Maliska from Tahoe, was kind of, a, you know, helped out just on the rigging part. And then later had a, you know, a big crew to work the race and everything. Right. And th- that worked into numerous jobs over the years. Uh-huh. And you actually ended up racing once, you said. Yeah. In 95, I ended up competing in the Ray Galois, but our team kind of fell apart. And But we finished the race. Right. Where was it? Uh, Argentina. Okay. So Patagonia. They said Patagonia. Right. And, of course, I'd already been to Patagonia a bunch of times. And, you know, it turned out that adventure racing isn't quite like mountaineering or climbing, but uh, there's more rules and regulations that you sure. have to go by and, you know. But it was fun, and I learned a lot, and uh, it was, you know, I, I was actually on a really good team. So, yeah, a, and then you, you rigged the the Primal Quest that was right here in the valley, and like, um, I also worked on that. We talked about that a little bit earlier, but it's the one. What was the the deal with the towers? What was the obstacle in the in the operation there on Castleton, and right here in your backyard, essentially? Right. So actually, the race director. No, yeah, I guess he would be considered race director. Anyway, mm-hmm. it was Don Mann, who was a Navy SEAL okay. that I had worked with before. So when they came out and did this thing, he's like, what can you do? And I'm like, well, you know, where is this race going to go? And he's like, well, we want it to go here and here and here and here. So we ended up having six different locations throughout the desert where there was ropes. And, we, you know, we would go and rig these things. And then we actually pre-rigged them before the race took them down because you're not allowed to leave ropes hanging on public land. Right. And then right before the race, we had to go back and put them back in again as the competitors were coming. Right. And so there was two of us doing that. And then we had a crew that manned those ropes. And then those crews would leapfrog along. And we had six locations. And the last one was Castleton Tower and the rectory and the priest and all that. And so, you know, I mean, you're it's for television, right? Right. Right, so right, we're yeah. trying to make it spectacular, and you're kind of limited on what you can do. Um, in those days, it was more like just ascending and rappelling. Mm-hmm. And um, so we had them ascend the north face of Castleton, Jubar all the way up there, and then wrap the south side, then go across the rectory, and we had fixed ropes up, fine jade. And, um, you know, we made sure, you know, since I live here and I'm aware, well aware of the rock and not destroying it and everything, we put no bolts in. I mean, it was all natural stuff. Uh-huh. And when we did Gemini bridges, we wrapped them with rope, wrapped the ropes around the arches. So it was it was all natural. There wasn't a single nut placement on the whole thing. Oh, right. And we kind of did the same thing with the priest. Well, with, you know, with the rectory. And then we had a high line over the priest. That's what I was thinking of. Yeah, because you guys had like a zip line. Or yeah. high line or whatever yeah. they had to cross. Yeah. I, for some reason, I imagined it uh, from the the rectory to Castleton, but that's absurd. That would be well, they've done that. Oh, they have? Yeah. Okay, it was so actually, when it was absurd. done, it was the longest high line in the world. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's a long way. <laughs> yeah, and didn't... And only one person got across it. Really? Yeah. And I think it took them, it took like eight guys to carry the rope up there. Okay. Yeah. And then by the time they got it up and rigged and everything, I think one guy got across and then they took it down. I don't know. I don't even know when that happened. I no. never saw it. But and then the one at, at the at the Gemini Bridges is that where they were zipping their bikes down at? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, I remember I was a PA on that and uh, running around with the camera guy, and uh, so I'd show up at these things and just be like, "Whoa, this is pretty elaborate." 
It was fun. I mean, it was, you know, get creative and mm-hmm. make this, make it as attractive as you can for the competitors. Right. Because it's all about their, you know, their race, you know. And, and a lot of them at the end of the race said the ropes course was the best part of the race. And yeah. there was, you know, there was lots of mountain biking and paddling and, you know, but a lot of people came up to me and said that. And that made me feel really good, you know, and no accidents. And that's with 360 people traveling through the desert day six or day 10 mm-hmm. coming across on the ropes. You're like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, because they're not themselves. I mean, they've been up all night. Those races, they're, they're not as fashionable as they once were. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, they, they were insane. Like, these people would go, and, and they'd have to force them to sleep or to stop or, you know, to take well, care of their feet. Or they'd be hobbling by with, like, the worst blisters anybody's ever seen. Oh, yeah. And, yeah, it was insane. Yeah, and the problem is, I mean, all the competitors would love to still be doing it, but it never... You know, as a television program, it just never got edited as well as it could have been. Mm-hmm. I think the race here could have been pretty interesting, but, you know, production and the directors who, you know, or uh, the networks who have the final say mm-hmm. in the program, you know, they cut out a lot of stuff. And it's it's just not the same. Right. You know. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if it really, you know, does it make a good television program? Probably not. Yeah, who knows? Just climbing. Yeah, <laughs> not, not necessarily. Really. No, not really. Although the, the Meru guys have have sort of proven that to be possible anyway to entertain a massive crowd with a with a climbing movie. But yeah, I, I mean, even during it, when I was because I was running, you know, literally or hiking half the time with these these crews through the middle of the night with the the teams, you know, and you know, you're just like, well. This actually isn't that interesting. Like we're just walking in the dark right now, you know. And I don't know. I I, I was I kind of was like, all right. But you're well. beating somebody. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> somebody somewhere yeah. on this course is behind us. We think, except for we don't right. know. Yeah. So yeah, I, I was telling you earlier too that I started doing that. I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll get two hundred bucks a day to or whatever it was to do whatever you tell me to do. I happen to be here. And then the first day I, I had to run with one of these teams, like out of the gates and like basically a couple hours into it, I was like, I am, is this what I'm going to be doing for six days? Is just <laughs> running with these people? I don't run. I'm a rock climber. Like I'm, I should have been on your crew is what I should have been done. I should have been actually that when I was up at Gemini bridges, cause I showed up up there and, and everybody was chilling. Kitty was up there actually. And I was like. Oh, yeah, this is what I should have been doing. Actually. Zach Smith was working there. Oh, yeah, Zach was up there, too. Yeah. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah, so I was like, oh, well, I guess... This and I had like... a great crew, yeah, right? Totally. I had a really good crew. Mm-hmm. And I've always had a great crew, and they've always been, you know, good friends and climbers, and they're all solid, and most of them mm-hmm. are guides, and, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. And we, like I said, you know, I've worked a bunch of these races, and we never, ever had an accident. Yeah. And yeah, that totally. was, you know, knock on wood, whatever, but... Uh, yeah, and the races—it's unfortunate. The races have gone away, and you know, without the support of television, they're just not going to happen. Well, they're, they're too expensive. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's this huge operation, like elaborate. You're just, you guys were just a small part of the whole. Oh yeah, yeah, the whole yeah. thing. So. I mean, it was a million dollars to put those things on, at least, and they didn't. At least, yeah. yeah. All right, let's talk about climbing. We have to do that. That's what this podcast is all about. Um, but that's cool stuff. We kind of cross paths in, in a very remote way on that on that particular thing. Um, 
I do actually remember talking to you at the party afterwards down at the, uh, was that the Red Cliff or at the school? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, but um, let's talk about your climbing a little bit. And I kind of uh, warned you I might ask you this, so hopefully you've had a few moments to think about it. But, you know, in this career, again, where your name is attached to things here in the desert and things in Red Rocks and things in Patagonia and, you know, all over the world, Alaska, you know, can you point to a couple, like, a sense or a couple trips or a couple things that, you know, when you write your memoir, as it were, or writing, hopefully at this moment, or, you know, that'll get a chapter that'll be like, this was a, an important thing that I did. Not necessarily important to everybody else. Maybe we don't even know about it, but it was important to you as a development of a climber, as a person, or, or what have you. Well, you know, as I think back... Over the years of climbing, what stands out are the big climbs that I've done. You know, I mean, I could go sport climbing. I mean, I have, I've had fun in Australia, you know, climbing one-pitch routes and stuff like that. But what really stands out are the big routes that I've done. You know, like, you know, Tori Egger is certainly one of them. And, you know, Kachat Inspire and Middle Triple. And it's the big routes that you pull off and you're like, whoa, that, at the time, that was awesome. That, I mean, right. that was a big effort. I'm glad we did it and we lived through it and, you know, we could have died at this point or that point. And, you know, so, yeah, so that's what stands out. And you always try to have fun on these climbs, right? And the first big expedition, first big expedition I ever did was to Everest in 1985. And I was on an expedition with 20 other climbers and half of them I didn't know. Some of them I did know. Bridwell was on there and actually Ed, met Ed Webster on that trip and, uh, Pete Athens was on that trip, and you know, this guy Andy Politz, who I actually haven't seen since, but he was a you know there's a bunch of great guys, mm-hmm. and but it was a huge team, and you know it wasn't the kind of climbing. I mean, Everest was cool because before that I'd only been to Mount Whitney; that was the highest thing I'd ever climbed. Okay, <laughs> so I went from Whitney to Everest, and then I felt like I could have done it. You know, got to over eight thousand meters on the thing, but I realized that that's not the kind of climbing I want to do. So the year after that, I put together a trip of four of us, and we went and climbed Cantega, and that was more in line. What's that? Cantega is next to Ama de Blom. Okay. It's uh, 22,320 feet, something like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, It's just a, a beautiful peak that I saw when I was in the Kumbu, and... Um, there was, you know, the North Face was unclimbed at the time. In fact, Kevin Mahoney and Freddie Wilkinson, uh, you know, those guys went back and actually climbed the North Face quite a few years later. But um, so when you go into a place and you see what has not been done and you see some real striking line, I mean, most climbers would like, whoa, that hasn't been climbed. You know, we got to go do it. So that's kind of, you know, been my theme the whole time. How did you end up on the Everest trip? I Having think, only climbed Mount Whitney. Yeah, I think point. Bridwell. I didn't okay. even know Bridwell at the time, uh-huh. really. And, you know, but he lived in Tahoe and North Shore. I live in South Shore. And uh, I don't know. I think somehow I got invited because of him. Okay. Yeah. Like he had some respect for you that you, you I not guess. known about? I mean... 
Yeah, right. I didn't have any kind of name. I mean, you know, I hadn't done anything. I'd right. been to I'd been to Alaska once at that point. Okay. Yeah. So then I got to see the Himalayas, and you know, immediately was drawn back, and right. so that kind of started off on you know the big alpine thing. So you keep talking. You keep mentioning Bridwell having climbed a lot with that guy. That was your first trip with him. That was you, my you, first trip. Yeah. I didn't. I didn't really climb a lot with Bridwell. Okay. Well, certainly before that, I hadn't climbed at all with him. Mm-hmm. I'd seen him around, you know. I mean, I was, I was kind of on the periphery in Yosemite at the time. You know, there's people like Calc and Backer, right. and those guys lived there the whole time, and I would just show up, you know, be there a week or two, and go do something, and you know, hang out and camp for, and all that stuff. And you know, I don't know. I mean, after the Everest thing, that's when Bridwell asked me to go to Patagonia. Okay, so you must have shown him something on that trip as well, then. I guess. <laughs> well, you mean in Patagonia? No, no, I mean on, on the Himalayas to come back and, and of those 20 guys, he's like, all right, this guy's cool. We'll take him to Patagonia. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's but like I mean, that's a pretty, like, getting called up to the big leagues. Yeah. To I mean, go it was down Bridwell, to Patagonia right? with Bridwell, Bridwell, like the camp's yeah. named after right. the guy. And so I learned right. a lot from him, you know. Yeah. And, he, you know, he was, he was a good partner on that stuff. Right, right. And uh, we did some roots. So who else can you talk about in terms of, like, the, the partners you've had that you, you know, either kept for a lifetime or had, like, an ultimate respect for um, as you were as you were climbing? Either you learned a lot from them or, you know, they were someone who's, whose camaraderie was the best or, you know, just someone you had a ton of respect for. Uh, I mean, I've had a lot of good partners. Uh, Paul Crawford in Tahoe, Paul was my main partner for years and years and years when we were climbing Calveras and around Tahoe and stuff. And he's still climbing wicked hard, as far as I know. And, uh, uh, well, Steve Gerberdine I climbed with for years and years, and we okay. did a bunch of routes together. And Conrad Anchor, we did a bunch of routes. And actually, Steve Conrad and I climbed, you know, we climbed Edgar together and a few other things. And Dan Osman, um, did a few trips with him and then you know of course got involved with the north face and then met a bunch of other people and uh alex Lowe, greg child and uh but didn't really do i mean we all went to the oxu in 95 Mm -hmm. but that's also when i met my wife kitty calhoun and we did a trip to the oxu and then uh we ended up doing a bunch of trips together after that well, Jack Tackle, I've done a bunch of trips with. And Danini, I climb with Danini all the time. Right. He does, <laughs> he's He's been probably one of my biggest inspirations. I mean, he's 10 years older than me. Right. He's still out there. Right. He's, he goes every every opportunity he can. Sure. To go climbing. Right. You know? And so it's like, I'm trying to keep up with him. He's, isn't he in Indian Creek right now? Yeah. Yeah. Like with the masses. It's like hammering yeah. away down there. Yeah, yeah. You know, but he never tires of climbing. Right. Never. You know. Have you? Have you ever had periods where you were away from it? Not very long. Right. Just, you know, a couple of weeks. A couple. <laughs> Here and there, you know, or, you know, maybe a, a bit more than that. But right now, like you said, you know, I've just come back to the Himalayas. I can use a break right now. Right. From the Himalayas or from climbing. From climbing even. Well, you know, I was just in New York a couple of days ago and 
got to stay with Russ Clune and okay. and we're in the gunks and it was you know it's November and it's supposed to be raining and cold and it was seventy five degrees and it was awesome right and you know Kitty and I we hadn't rock climbed since August and we you know we just came back from the Himalayas and mm-hmm. so we started out on a five three and then our second route was a five three. <laughs> And the next day we stepped up to five four, and it nice was like job. good job. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like the gunks, you know. It's like, hey, this is fun. Yeah, and yeah, we can wear a t shirt and. Yeah, know. I mean, you get a good night's sleep. You're going to want to go climbing again. That, yeah. That's all you probably really need. You kind of yeah, you kind of can get burnout, but I think you know if it's a nice day outside and it's warm. All of a sudden, you're like, well, I should be out there climbing. Right, right. So let's, uh, you kind of started to seg into it. And I, I wanted to ask you about that age. And, and you told me, like, oh, I'm not embarrassed about age. You know, I, you can ask me what you want about it. It's not like a big thing to me. But, you know, so you, you just mentioned Danini's 10 years older than you. He's still cranking it out. You know, what has it meant to you to, to, you get know, older? Yeah, to get older, but to stay climbing and to be somebody who's, again, I mean, I just keep going back to this this career. It's just, it's mind-boggling the amount of, of, of things you've I done. don't know what else to do right. with myself. Right. You know, I, you know, climbing, it always, it gives you a goal. It gives you something to strive for. It keeps you, you know, reasonably fit, mm-hmm. hopefully. And um, if I didn't do that, what would I be doing? I see people mountain biking, you know, around here, you know, there's a thousand mountain bikers and people are base jumping and paddling and doing all this stuff. And I don't know, none of that really appeals to me because, you know, it's it's a little bit, it's not what I've been doing. I'm not very good at it, right. any of those things. And climbing is kind of the only thing I've known forever. And I don't know what's going to happen when I can't climb anymore. Right. But at least I have people like Danini kind of yeah. <laughs> you know? holding that carrot out there. Like, yeah. it can be done. It's like if he can do it, hopefully I can do it. Yeah. Well, mountain biking is, means one thing, broken bones. That's that's all it, it's going <laughs> to result in. So stay away from that. But so what about, I mean, I'm going to ask you this because uh, a concern, you know, I have personally and a lot of people voice, especially if they if they're climbing, Climbing hard or climbing at a certain level is important to them. You know, what do you do when it's like, okay, I you was this guy and I can't do that anymore. And we got to learn to accept it. Well, and the big thing with me is boldness. You know, is, is that's the one thing I've like, um, I would say I was such a lazy climber that I've not met my, I've, I still have a threshold physically that I never found when I was younger because I was so lazy. So I still have that, but I'm not, I just am not as bold as I once was. Well, yeah. So, yeah. So people realize after a while that they, they are mortal, mm-hmm. right? And, and we talked about that on this last expedition we did, you know, that when I was climbing back in whatever, the eighties, nineties, I felt like I could do anything, right? I don't feel that way anymore. I feel like I could easily trip and break my leg or whatever, mm-hmm. but I'm trying not to have that hold me back, you know. So I just have to limit to what I'm, what I'm doing, and I just try to keep it in control, and not do things that are way beyond me. Right. So, you know, yeah, I'm not climbing. You know, I never have climbed five thirteen, and um, I've climbed some, some hard twelves and stuff. Can I do that now? No, probably not. I'll be glad to climb. 511. But as long as I feel like I'm doing my best and climbing at my limit, that's 
that's fine. And being bold? No, I'm not nearly, you know. I used to do some big old run out stuff. And the thought of doing that stuff now? No, I wouldn't do it. Yeah, it's weird. I wouldn't even want to repeat a lot of my roots, you know? No, no. Yeah, no. (laughs) So you did it once. Why do you have to do it again? Totally. Yeah, that's the way I, I, you know, actually, uh, another time we crossed paths uh, was years ago in Yosemite. And I was that, you know, I was super into aid climbing. Uh, on on El Cap and A5 and whatever that means. But if someone, I always joke, if someone like somehow magically just transported me, this me, the 44-year-old me, into the middle of one of those pitches that I used to have no problem with, like I'd like, I would have, I'd go catatonic and have a complete meltdown, you know, just like start frothing at the mouth. And I used to just be able to do it. It was almost like it was someone else doing it. Like, I could just, like, stand back and go, yeah, whatever, you know, just jump on the hook, do do what you need to do, you know. Just keep going. Yeah. Just get up there. Right. Blair's waiting on you. Yeah, totally. (laughs) Well, that's how I started soloing things, because I didn't want want that pressure behind me. I could could do eight or nine hours up there without any problems coming from the rope. But, but yeah, so I just, it's a curious thing, and, and I think it is something that in this age now with sport climbing and with people so performance oriented in a way I think didn't exact it existed but not with the the fervor that it does now um that is a concern of like well what's going to happen when all I can do is climb this or all I can do is climb that well hopefully you'll be still having fun right and you know you're able to get out there and do that thing Mm -hmm. because you know in the crew that I hang out with we're all getting older and a lot of us or having some kind of issues, right? I mean, either your shoulder's killing you, or your elbow, or your finger, or something's wrong, you know? <laughs> <laughs> you know now you talk about all your right. surgeries, right, and, you right. know, it's like, well, if you can stay healthy and keep climbing, you're way ahead of the game, right? So that's kind of... You just want to have fun. Right. You want to get out there, and but feel like you're doing your best. Right. And, you know, if that's 5'8", at the wherever you're at, you know, at whatever age, as long as you're still having fun. And you're, mm-hmm. I, I was just talking to R- Russ Kloon, and Fritz Wiesner was climbing in the gunks at 85. Right. 85. Yeah. He's up there. And I don't know if he was leading or, you know, but, hey, he lived that long. You know, most, you know, half my friends, have, you know, they don't even exist anymore. Right. <laughs> they didn't even get to 50. Right. You know. Well, and you think about what the alternative of, you know, most of the 85-year-olds in America are, and it's it's bleak. It isn't climbing in the gunks on a sunny day, that's for sure. Right. You know? No, and you look around, and there's people, you know, and they're hobbling around. There's, you know, people have some issue, but there is a few people out there, mm-hmm. like Danini, um, like Rab Carrington, you know. I mean, there's these guys who are 70 and up. I mean, there's a bunch of them, and they're still climbing hard, and they're out there all the time, and they're mm-hmm. having fun, mm-hmm. and that's that's what I'm hoping to be able to do. What kind of motivation is uh, having Kitty around and having a relationship uh, with the climber? Well, Kitty's, you know, I mean, she's a great wife, and, um, you know, her life is climbing as well. And, of course, now she's just uh, become one of the owners of Chicks with Picks, so she's she's got a whole new career in front of her, mm-hmm. which I questioned, you know, it. Really, do you want to do that? But her partners are all really good people, really good guides, 
I think they have a great business going. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so that's going to take up a lot of her time. So I got to find something else to do, you know, I mean, (laughs) because she's going to be out there guiding and working and all that stuff. And so, I mean, and the other thing is, you know, it's, it gives me opportunities to go out and do my photography and go out and shoot stuff. And that's always been fun too. And there's your Corvette. Yeah, yeah, well. Rebuilding those things. One of them's <laughs> yeah. bound to break. And oh, they've been. It already broke, actually, oh, yeah, while we were sitting in here. It's, it, it was just something fell off of it, <laughs> I heard. No, and I guess maybe the last question I have in terms of all this stuff, because you said your cohort now, you know, you've got all these guys that, you know, you guys can sit around and talk about your ailments, but just like old boys should do. But what about climbing with younger folks, and what about mentoring or you were a guide with your rigging company. Sounds like, you know, you brought in a bunch of younger folks to work for you. Um, does that play into it at all? Because again, coming from me personally, I try to support climb hard still in rifle and things like that. And I have some friends that are in my sort of age group that I climb with, but I end up having to climb with, you know, kids half my age all the time. And it's pretty motivating, actually. You know, sometimes it's super annoying. But then the other big one is These that... These are just partners you're talking about. Yeah, just yeah. partners. And, and uh, you know, I, I climb with uh, Hayden Kennedy quite a bit. And um, went down to Mexico with him last year to climb on El Gigante. And I was concerned, you know, like, we're going to go down there for three weeks. And, like, you know, I'm for sure going to get annoyed with him because he's like, has too much fucking energy right. and he's going to sure get annoyed with me because I'm like a grumpy, crusty jerk. And, and yet it worked out really well. And it, it speaks to his maturity to a certain extent with dealing with, you know, the, me, but, but it also, I mean, I, I just don't know who else I would have gone down and climbed that wall in that way with, you know? Right. So do you have any, like, are you, are you folks around here that you're like, all right, I'll climb with that guy. Well, you know, I guess I'm always a little bit shy or whatever. I mean, I always felt like I needed to, you know, climb well. And if I go out with some kid that's 14 years old and they're dragging me up something, you know, that I wouldn't feel so good about that. Right. I mean, when I was guiding, it was different Mm because, you know, you're teaching people how to climb and it's kind of a different situation. And so I guess I've chosen to climb with people that I know right? and know how they climb and stuff. But, you know, I'm at that stage now where I need to get out and climb with some younger people. And that's what, you know, Kitty's all behind that, you know, mentoring. And there's a bunch of people, you know, it's just kind of coming to light in my eyes that, you know, maybe there's something I can do here. And, I, you know, Danini is a perfect example of that. You know, somebody will contact him on whatever, on the internet, and he's like, oh, yeah, come on out, I'll take you climbing. And he does that all the time. So he's going to climb with total strangers. Right. That's something I've never really done. Mm-hmm. But, you know, actually when I get out and do something like that, it's fun. So. <laughs> all right, well, you just blew it. Because I get an email a week of, like, young climbers, like, just getting into it, like, well, how do I... How do I even find someone that's going to teach me how to climb safely and like do it the way you know you learned how to do it? So, uh, I'm, if they can find your email on the internet, you're mm. going to just get inundated. No, I'm going to change it out. <laughs> anyway, well, look, I, I wanted to ask you that because to me, that 
is this is this it is this lost or this thing that climbing is losing to a certain extent and and not in a formal way that you know the climbers with experience need to you know have some sort of weird you know bevy of of young climbers that they're teaching but you know with this gym thing and and so many people getting into climbing like like all the folks we saw in castleton just having the the most epic days ever up there getting totally beat down like there is this kind of like lack of people with experience out there, like mentoring people with a little bit less experience. And I don't, I don't see you. Yeah. Like some guy that's never climbed before, like, come on, let's go climbing junior. But <laughs> as an alpinist, I mean, as an alpinist, as someone who has so much experience in that realm, you know, I think that some hotshot climber that climbs ice crazy well and has done, whatever still has a ton to learn from somebody like you or somebody like Jack or somebody like Donini, you know, it's like you don't, I mean, I'm sort of lecturing you right now. Well, you oh, know, yeah, I just realized that. Hey, listen, mister, well, somebody <laughs> walked, you need to teach him. If somebody <laughs> walked up and asked me, you know, Hey, would you take me climbing or something? You know, I might look at him and make a decision right there on the spot. And I'm like, Oh yeah, sure. You know, what, Is your daisy you know, chain I'm, through your legs. No, you can't go. <laughs> <laughs> what, what are you wearing? You know? <laughs> right now. <laughs> But, I mean, that happened just recently at, uh, in Uray. Mm-hmm. There's a woman walked up, and she's like, oh, would you take me for an ice climb? Turns out she was a really good climber. Right. You know. Well, that's the thing. Is that That's, <laughs> that's what I'm getting at, man, is you, you have something to teach them besides whether or not they can get up. Well, I guided for 20 ice. years. Yeah. So, you know, right. I mean, that's kind of. Right. And so now I worry about if somebody gets hurt or something. You know, mm. Hopefully that's not going to happen on my watch, right, speak, right, but but if I'm at the crags and I see somebody and they're doing something that they shouldn't be, then I'll I'll say something, right, for sure, right. Cool. All right. Well, we've just uh, ripped through an hour. How was that? All right, Chris. Well, you've made me do it, so hopefully nobody in your audience gets sick or something. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do that ending again. <laughs> Don't say I made you do it. <laughs> no. <coughs> All right, we're going to okay. do it again. You're just going to say, let thanks, go it, my was, arm. it was let a go pleasure. You're going to go, that was a real pleasure, Chris. Thanks, or something like that. That's what you're going to say now. No, I'm just kidding. But, do you uh, know, but, that was a really good dinner you cooked tonight. Oh, thanks, man. Yeah, that was awesome. Thanks a lot. Yeah, that's how I, that's how I tricked uh, Jay into coming in here. And all that beer? Whoa. Yeah, that helps. Yeah. Well, again, thanks a lot, Jay. We will uh, hopefully hang out a little bit more. I, I've really enjoyed talking now to you. Now you know so. where I live. Yeah, totally. You're like, can you take Look me climbing, Mr. Yeah. Smith? <laughs> might be the other way around. <laughs> All right, thanks, Jay. All right, thanks. All right, folks, that's another one in the bag. A real honor to get Jay Smith on the show. Jay's been getting after for a long time, and I think that, uh, like I said, because of the lack of publicity, everybody kind of knows his name, but maybe when you look at the width and depth and breadth and meat and chewy, chewy fat on his resume, it's pretty damn impressive, and I'm glad we got this one done. So, thanks everybody. If you want to support the Enormacast, please consider helping out. Go to enormacast.com, click on the Help Out tab bunch of stuff you can do. You can also donate to the cause if you wish to give up a few of your hard-earned dollars. I do appreciate that. 
And also remember to support our sponsors, including BlazeSpecs. BlazeSpecs.com. Enter eNormalCast at checkout and get a discount on those funky, funky glasses that work so damn well. All right, everybody, get out there. If you go to the ice park, please don't just check your knot, but check everybody within like 100 yards of you, if you don't mind. Okay, just walk up and down there, do your duty, checking knots. Eventually, you'll catch somebody with a fucked up knot. I can guarantee it. All right, good day. Want a beer? You gonna call room service? We got beer. You hold beer up this ride, you're insane. I may be insane, but I'm not stupid. I didn't carry it. You did it in your pack.